It is good to be with you this evening, and it's good for us to be together. If you'll open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians, we'll be referring to a passage there uh, somewhat later in the lesson. If you'll go ahead and turn there and get ready for our study this evening. Before we begin our lesson for this evening... I've been asked to make a couple announcements. Today we've just enjoyed the showering of God's blessing as God, who's a father of love, has not only shown in our life the radiance of the sun, but has given us the rain today. What a pleasant day, in a very unique way, it has been that God has provided for us. But not just in that, but God has, has showered blessings on us as a congregation. And he has done so for quite many years. As we think about the people who have come and the people who have gone, who have passed through our lives and been part of our work together in the Lord's kingdom. And tonight, you know, I sadly have to announce that our dear sister Brenda Hogle will be moving tomorrow. And so... This evening is her last evening with us as a member of the congregation here. She is moving to the Cookville area to be near Jason and Danielle. And we can understand that completely. And we will miss her immensely. She has been an asset to us as, as a congregation and her absence will be felt. But we know she'll do good work wherever she goes. Because she loves the Lord, she loves the truth, and she loves the Lord's people. But also, we have another family that will be soon leaving us, very soon, and that's the Torados. And they've not been with us very long, and, but their time with us has been very special. You know, they too have been an asset, and so grateful that uh, David's work brought them you know, even for a short time, to be with us. But we're thankful they have passed through our life and they have been such an encouragement to us. And so we will miss David and Janet and their children, Giselle and David as well. And we wish them well. Next Sunday will be you know, their last Sunday with us. Uh, you know, I forget exactly, either the following Friday or Saturday will be their moving date back down to Florida. So be mindful of those dear brethren. They will always be our brethren no matter where they are. And that's the beauty of God's family. That you know, wherever we go and which, which, whichever local body of believers we assemble and work together in the kingdom, you know, we're a part of one family. And it's a wonderful family. That we are so blessed to be showered with blessings from above that we have been adopted together into this relationship of Jesus Christ that makes us one. And what a beautiful oneness that is. And so we wish a smooth transition and we pray for a smooth transition for our dear sister Brenda tomorrow. And as she begins that new page and stage in her life and does good work over in the Cookville area, but also in the coming couple of weeks, we wish the best to the Torados as well as they go back to the Tampa area and uh, continue work there. They've lived there before, 
So, you know, yeah, so they're kind of going back to some home territory uh, and to carry the torch of the gospel, you know, there further. And so be praying for them all as your brethren. Now, there may be no other religious term that is more commonly used and with the greatest of confusion than the word church. Think about it. The word church. You know, today we hear, you know, when people talk about church, the subject of church, you'll hear them talk about my church or my wife's church or your church or our church. And when you hear those kind of conversations, often, if not most of the time, it's in such a way that it appears, and it may be a misinterpretation of my part, but it appears so often to me that there is such a disregard for really what the church is supposed to be. And that often, you know, the conversation kind of lends toward the idea that there's no greater sanctity, there's no greater respect for the concept of the church than simply a civil gathering or a social club. And so today we look throughout our community here in the borough, or we look throughout our nation or even in the world, we see every kind, every kind of church imaginable, and it keeps on growing. It's almost limitless, you know, the way, you know, the concept of the church changes in the world. And they all claim, they all profess, you know, and sometimes very passionately and very zealously devout, they claim to be doing all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know, as well as, you know, all of us do, that profession alone doesn't necessarily make it true, though. And also we know that zeal by itself also doesn't make it acceptable. And that goes with us as well. Just because I profess something, just because I declare and proclaim something doesn't necessarily make it right before God. And just because I'm very passionate or very zealous about something, that doesn't mean I'm acceptable with God. And we understand that. And so it's not just about pointing outward, but also it's about let's look in the, in the mirror and examine ourselves. As we profess and claim to be a people of God that are walking in the Lord. A majority of people in our culture today in the U.S. have concluded that the church is really not that important. And you can see it in people's everyday life, really. They really have concluded from their own personal faith journey, whatever journey that they're walking on, you know, for many of them, they don't see that this idea of the church is very important. And one way that's brought out is the fact of this saying where you have heard, I'm sure, one church is as good as another. Perhaps you've heard that. Perhaps we've all heard that in some form or fashion. If that is true, if that is true, that, you know, in a logical way, if you stay on that kind of path of reasoning, that kind of thing, if you stay on that path that begins with this idea of one church is as good as another, it will end eventually where it says no church is as good as any. Because that's the, that's the nature of the digression. That's the nature of that kind of path. 
Now, we're here tonight not to consider all of the options that are out there, but in a very brief way, a very brief way, consider what does the Bible say? That's really what's important. What does the Bible say? Not what David says, or what does Leland say? What does the Bible say? What does God's inspired words teach in regarding to the church, and particularly Christ's church? God and our Lord never calls, never describes the church, His church, as a denomination. That concept is never used biblically. Now, there was division in the New Testament, and we are warned that that division was going to grow and the division is going to multiply. It's there, but the concept of denominationalism is not. It's a very unbiblical, ungodlike concept. Denominationalism, as you know, with any sense of biblical or religious history, you know this, that it began, it has its origin several hundred years, several hundred years after Jesus has already built his church, which he promised in Matthew 16. So denomination comes much later. And so, you know, but God, you know, God never calls the church, never describes the church in the concept of denominationalism as we see so familiarly today in our culture. And if that be true, neither should we. We should never, as a people of God, a people trying to be a people of God, trying to walk by the one faith, we, we should never refer to our Lord's church as a denomination. We should never talk about the church in that concept. Neither should we lump the Lord's church in with other denominations. Because God doesn't. Denominations will continue to multiply because men will continue to divide. Left to ourselves, left to ourselves, to our own thinking, our own opinions, our own feelings, left to ourselves, and that includes us, left to ourselves, we will divide. There will be differences that will pull us apart. But a true believer... A faithful follower of Christ can be a member of Christ's church without ever joining any kind of denomination. And that's what happened in the New Testament. When people were convicted by the truth, converted to Christ, and added by the Lord to His church, they were never part of a denomination. And that's what we need to be. We need to be a people who are undenominational and do not see the church at all in that kind of concept. But we are so infiltrated and affected and impacted by our world that it's easy sometimes to find our language and our thought process sometimes being affected in almost in an unconscious way. The church... As you know, as good students of God's Word, the church is a spiritual house. The church is a spiritual relationship of fellowship with God and of fellowship with Christ and of fellowship as well with brethren 
who are members of Christ. So in a very simple way, we're going to look at some points that try to answer partially the big question, what is the church of our Lord Jesus Christ? And so we begin with that familiar aspect of, okay, the word church is translated from a Greek word that looks something like ekklesia there. And many of you know that that Greek word literally means called out or called out ones. So that's nothing new to you who are good Bible students, grounded in the word. And it is a word that simply describes an identifiable group of people assembling. And so in Greek, in ancient Greek, by which the New Testament is in Kone Greek, this word was not solely a religious word. The word ekklesia was not just a it was not just a religious word. It could be used in other contexts. And but the, our word church is pretty much focused in religion. It has become a religious word, and that's how we use it. So when we look to the New Testament, what are identifying traits? How can we identify a group as Christ's church? You know, what what makes it Christ's church? What makes it His assembly of disciples? And there's a number of of passages you can look to that address this in in a complete way. And we're we're just going to kind of scratch the surface of this this evening. But that's why I had you turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where we begin to see, okay, what are some of the traits that set a group of people and identify them, okay, this is Christ's group. This is Christ's congregate. This is Christ's assembly. Well, it begins with the fact, once again, the word means called out. So this called out group, how were they called? How were they? They weren't called by some uh, you know, civil community uh, uh, mandate. It wasn't, call, it wasn't some politician who said, hey, we're going to have a civic gathering. No, how was Christ's group, Christ's church, called out ones, called? Well, they're called by the gospel. Other groups at the New, in New Testament times, other you know, identifying groups, that were called out and became an assembly were not Christ because they weren't called by the gospel. They were called by something else. And so in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says to the church, to the saints in Thessalonica, we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you. God has chosen you from the beginning. For salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this He called you through our gospel. That you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So a beginning point, meaning, okay, what, what makes a identifying group Christ's people, Christ's church? Well, they have to be a people who have been called by the gospel. Called by the truth, the word of truth. But also, 
It is a people who have been called out of darkness as well. And so you turn over to Colossians, and Leland will talk about this a little bit, Lord willing, next Sunday. As you look there in the first chapter of Colossians, and just read verse 12 and verse 13, where it says, Okay, give thanks to the Father who has qualified us, Who's he talking? He wants to talk to saints and faithful brethren in Christ at Colossae. So the church at Colossae. He says, give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share, to have fellowship in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So Christ Church is not only called by the gospel, by the truth of God, but also in that calling by the truth, they are called out of the rule and the domain and the influence of darkness. And so there are people who leave the darkness and come into the light and everything that entails, which means exposure, does it not? But you're willing to do so. Because you want to be in the light and you don't want to be in the darkness anymore. In Acts 2, you know, as we consider the first gospel sermon recorded, there on the day of Pentecost, you have the apostles being filled with the Holy Spirit, immersed with it and proclaiming the truth, preaching the gospel in all of these different languages by the power of the Spirit. And they testify to them that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God, is the Anointed One, is the Lord And you've crucified him, and 3,000 souls were convicted by that, received the word, and were baptized as they were instructed, as they were commanded there in Acts 2.38. Verse 41, it tells 3,000 of them did that, and they were added to that number, the number of disciples, of followers of Christ. And in verse 47, it says, the Lord continued day by day to add to the number or add to the church those who were being saved. And so the church is called by the gospel out of darkness into salvation. And the church is the saved. They are the saved. And as the saved, they are also the sanctified. And so you think about in the previous lesson, we talked about the importance of growing and maturing in sanctification in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ, saints by calling. With all who in every place call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So here are some very beginning, elementary concepts of understanding Who, what is the church? This identifiable group of people who are assembling, are working together, are having fellowship and and participating together. What what makes them of Christ? Well, here are some basic concepts. Well, they're called by the gospel. They have left the darkness. They have come to the light and now they're saved in Christ, by Christ, and therefore are the sanctified. They are God's saints now. They are not Satan's servants and slaves anymore. 
So clearly, when you think about just this description, you just kind of, and you envision these concepts attached to the idea of who the church is, the New Testament church that is established by Christ, built by Christ. And you think about this, here is a group of people that definitely is not a secular institution. There's nothing secular about these concepts. It is definitely not a man-made organization that is designed to kind of appease personal interests, my likes, my dislikes. That's not considered. It has nothing to do with what men build, but has everything to do about a people who have been changed, a people who have been convicted and converted by the one who came and dwelt among men, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, Jesus the Christ. The people who've changed their lives, and now, you know, those lives are defined by the fellowship, this new relationship they have with Christ. It's all reordered, reorganized, redefined, not by what we think, what we feel, or what we want. It's all about Jesus now and what he says. And as a result of that, they are a people who obviously their, their pursuits have changed, their ambitions have changed, their desires have changed. And so it is a change of allegiance, it is a change of focus, it is a change of priority, activity, interaction. It's radical. It's radical in comparison to the world. But it is, a, it is of Christ. Now, membership... Membership in the church Jesus built requires you to die, be buried, and be raised up in Christ. Salvation is in no other name but Jesus. You cannot be saved except through God's Son. He is our access to God our Father. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And to put on Christ, to clothe ourselves Christ, to adorn ourselves with Christ, we must be baptized. And so in turn, through this act, obedient act of faith, we die, we are buried, and we are raised in Christ, through Christ, and by Christ. In Galatians 3, verse 26, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. I find it interesting the past tense that is used there. He says, You are sons of God by faith. And one aspect that you have manifested that faith, one one aspect of what reason why you are a son of God by faith is you have already been baptized. That's done. And so now you're a son of faith. You have clothed, you have put your you have put on Christ. And so now you wear Christ. A believer of Jesus is not forgiven. A believer of Jesus is not saved. Until he is clothed with Christ. And if, if we believe, 
and we've not put on Christ as He's commanded, then my sins are not washed away. I'm not forgiven yet. If I haven't clothed myself with Christ because I believe in Him. And so a believer is forgiven, a believer is saved when he is baptized into Christ and puts on Christ. And when that happens, his sins are washed away through the grace of God because the blood of Christ has been shed once for all mankind. Propitiation, atonement has been made and God is just in justifying the believer in Jesus Christ now. And so when he is baptized for his sins to put on Christ, he is also baptized into Christ's body. And so membership, membership in Christ's church requires a death, a burial, and a resurrection in this life. And so you go over to, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And you read there in the 12th verse and the 13th verse of the 12th chapter as he's writing to the saints, to the called out, the saints by calling, the sanctified in Christ there in Corinth. And he says, for even as the body is one and yet has many members, all the members, all the members of the body, though there are many, are one, one body. So also is Christ. So Christ is made up of many members, but we're all one in him. He goes on to say then, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. But interesting, the similarity between that understanding of once we're baptized, there is this oneness that occurs among all those who share that. You go back to Galatians when it says you're, son of, you're, you're sons of God through faith in Christ. All of you who are baptized into Christ, put on Christ. And then verse 28. And so now there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ. Does that sound a lot of a very familiar, very similar to 1 Corinthians 12, 13? You have been baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free. And we're all made to drink of one spirit. And so Christ's body is his church and his church is his body. And this body uniquely, this body of the saved, of the sanctified, this body is the fullness, is the fullness of Christ. And so you look there at the end of chapter 1 in the Ephesian letter. Ephesians chapter 1, when he, when he says, And he put all things, verse 22, in subjection under his feet, speaking of Jesus. So all things are put in subjection under Jesus' feet, and, get, and God gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. Now listen. The church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The body the saved is the fullness of Christ. Is the church important? Is the church important? Yes. It is the fullness of Christ who fills all in all. 
And so we need to approach you know, the, the, the subject and the topic of the church, the Lord's church, Christ's church, the one that He built and promised that He would build. We need to approach that with the gravest of sanctity and respect because that body that has been called by the gospel out of darkness into light, which is the saved and which are the sanctified, that body is the fullness of Christ. She is the fellowship of His salvation. And so it is unique. The body, the church of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is unique. And what do we mean by when something's unique? Well, it stands alone without like or without equal. It is, it is something that is single in its kind. It transcends in excellence all other bodies. It is unequaled by any other. Does that describe, does that define the Lord's church? Yes, it does. The Lord's church, Christ's church, is like no other thing that's in the world. And so for that reason, if we outstep, if we go beyond... If, you know, beyond the doctrine of Christ, beyond the bounds of the New Testament, then we can lose our uniqueness of belonging to Jesus Christ. Of truly abiding in the Lord. That's why it's so vital that we understand who or what the church is. And what sets it apart. And why it sets it apart. The church belongs... To Jesus. It belongs to the Lord. It doesn't belong to me. It doesn't belong to you. It doesn't belong to us. It belongs to the Lord. It's His body. It's His called out. And we are the beneficiaries of it. That's what it is. We are the recipients of that blessing. Of being adopted as sons and daughters of the Father because of what the firstborn, the only begotten one, has done on the behalf of all humanity. So, what are some, some of the things that make the body of Christ so unique? Well, very briefly, we're going to look at three things. One is she is unique because of her Savior. And so you look there in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, it says, Walk in love, talking to Christians, this is what you need to be doing, we need to be doing. Walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Jesus is our offering. Jesus is our sacrifice to God. And so he comes back and attaches that to the concepts of the church. And you look there in verse 23, when he says, okay, Christ is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. Acts 2.28 tells us that Jesus purchased the church. Jesus bought her. Think about that. Jesus bought her. You know, when we take the blessings of our income and we go purchase something, you know, when we, we look at it, well, I paid for it, so now it's mine. 
And now we understand when we're really thinking on a spiritual realm, we all go, really, we're all just stewards, you know, for a while of the possessions that God gives us. But we understand the concept. Okay, if I paid for it, you know, it's mine now. That's the church. Jesus bought her. It makes the church unique because he is the Savior. He has loved the church even before its birth, even before its beginning. He has loved the church in such a way that he willingly made the ultimate sacrifice to sanctify her, to present her in glory. And that's brought out here in Ephesians chapter 5. You look you know, farther down in verse 20, 25. Okay, husbands, love your wives. And now we want to focus on what he says about Christ. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus bought her. He paid you know, the price. And he has given himself up for her so... That he might sanctify her. He's done, he's done everything for her. To sanctify his bride. To cleanse her by the washing of water with the word. So he not only has sanctified his bride. He has cleansed his bride. And in verse 27. That he might present her. To himself, the church, in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. The church is unique. That is, the Lord's church is unique. And one reason why is because of her Savior, because of her purchaser, and what that involved. And the idea, he did this all for her, and we, we are part of her. You know, we are living stones in the bride of Christ. We are living stones in the sanctuary of God. And so we're here. We are recipients of this fellowship and of this relationship. And what a beautiful bond of love this really is. Not to be severed. Not to be severed because of a disregard of God's covenant Between the saved and the Savior. Ephesians 5 primarily is about the church and Christ. So often we turn there and we focus so often about the importance of marriage and what what is involved in marriage and the roles that rightfully godly husband and godly wives need to be living up to. So yes, there is a secondary lesson here. But the primary lesson is we need to understand the relationship between Christ and us. Christ and His church. And it is a bond of love and sacrifice with the covenant of God. And we are not to break it. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. But also it is unique. It's unique in the fact he is also her head. Matthew 28, you know, in the Great Commission, uh, according to Matthew, you know, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So Jesus has all authority in heaven, except the Father is not under him. 
But everything else is under his son. And everything on earth is under him. He possesses all authority. And that's brought out, as we have already noted here in Ephesians, in, in, in chapter, chapter 1. And when you look particularly in verse 21, you know, when he talks about how God the Father has raised up Christ, seated him at his right hand in the heavens, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named. Is there anything that Jesus is not above? Far above? No, there's nothing. Whether you can talk about rulers, you can talk about authorities, you can talk about powers and dominions, names, it doesn't matter what it is. But he said, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Then he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. And so being the one with total authority over everything and particularly over his church, the word of Christ is absolute. The pattern revealed to us in the gospel of Jesus is absolute. And there are no earthly headquarters for him. He rules, reigns, and governs from heaven. And so any religious group, any other called out group who fails to subject completely, who fails to submit completely to him and to what he has authorized, what he has revealed, what he has said, that group, that called out assembly, you know, identified by other traits, is not Christ's. But Christ's church submits entirely to her head, who's Jesus. Adherence to men's creeds, adherence to men's traditions, what does it make? Well, it makes churches of men. It doesn't make us a church belonging to Christ. We have to recognize not only that he is a head, but we have to have to serve him as our head. But thirdly, as you think about the idea of it is, he is unique in the sense of, excuse me, in the, in the unique in the sense of how unity is maintained. Staying in Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, there verse 1, he says, Okay, Paul the prisoner implores you, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. We've all been called, and there's a lot of aspects to this calling. And one aspect of this calling, as it pertains to believers having fellowship with one another, is in verse 3, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. As we know, Jesus prayed for unity back in the Gospel of John chapter 17. He did not pray for uniformity. He prayed for unity among his disciples. And that unity is not established you know, by man's wisdom. It's established by God's wisdom. It is not upheld and established by man's philosophies and man's doctrines or traditions or requirements. No, it all has to be of God and of Christ. And so the called, the church, and its membership, she has the responsibility, we have the responsibility of keeping Christ's unity, preserving that unity. And I appreciate you know, Jonathan in his prayer praying about this. And preserving that unity you know, through a like-mindedness 
and a like discernment that Paul challenged the church at Corinth to have. You look back there in chapter 1, verse 10. I exhort you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, by His authority, I exhort you that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you. Well, that's going to be a hard thing to do. But how are we going to do that? Well, it's going to be accomplished by how? By, by, by being made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. Well, that's a tall order to fill. Is it attainable? Yes. It is attainable. How do we do that? Well, I think Ephesians 4 begins to give us you know, the resources that we need to work in that direction and preserve the unity you know, of the Spirit and the bond of peace. For example, you look there in chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. What's not moving forward here? And you, you're familiar with those, those verses. There's one body, one spirit. Since you were called to one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. You, you, know, you probably could have quoted that. And so what do we need to do? If we're going to be like-minded, if we're going to have you know, like-mindedness in our judgments, in our discernment, you know, what, what's going to be required? Well, it's going to require us to build on and to uphold a, a foundation, a platform that has already been laid down by the Spirit. And that's what's talked about in verses 4 through 6. This is the, the one foundation of Christ that's you know, referred to in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 11. There's only one foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what is, what's involved in that foundation? Well, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. That's all part of understanding the oneness of that foundation. And so these seven things unite. Why? Because they depend upon each other. And because they function in unison. You can't have many lords and be one. You can't have many different baptisms and be one. You can't have different faith and be one. There's one faith that's been once for all delivered. There's one baptism that puts you into the body of Christ. There's one hope, which is the inheritance that we have of heaven. There's only one of those things. This is not a diversity of unity being described, which is a common expression used by you know, denominations who are trying to promote or justify differences they have among themselves, you know, which divide them. And then they, on the other hand, they say, but we're all the same. And clearly they're not all the same. They're very different from each other. But Christ's unity can be attained. We can have like-mindedness when we come and agree on a passage like Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6. Where we abide, we keep abiding in or under the authority of Christ. We stand firmly on the teaching of our Christ. And we carry out his prescribed work as that's talked about there in chapter 4, 11 through 16. You know, that we're to grow up and be equipped, you know, verse 13, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of, of, of the Son of God, a mature man, to the measure and the stature of Christ. And we all work together in that direction. And so we must reverence our head, and we must uphold and submit and adhere to His standard. But, third, but finally also, it involves us adorning ourselves 
with characteristics, with traits which reflect Christ's calling of us. So you go back to the beginning of chapter 4. You look there in verse 1 and 2. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, of your calling. How? With all humility and gentleness and patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to, present your, to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Arrogant and selfish behaviors don't unify us. What it does, it nullifies that unity. And so we're called to adorn our lives as members of Christ, to clothe ourselves with humility, with gentleness and forbearance and patience. We're to clothe ourselves and we're to grow in all of the things. And all of that grows out of what? That grows out of a love of God. When the love of God is dwelling in us and reigning in us, what's what's going to show? What's going to show is humility and patience and gentleness and forbearance. That will be evident when God's love reigns victoriously in us. And interesting, these are attributes that are to be shown to one another. We're not showing these attributes toward God. No, we're called to exercise. If we're going to have the unity. If we're going to preserve the unity. We have to close ourselves with, with these traits toward one another. That's part of preserving the unity. And that takes work. He says, be diligent to preserve the unity. It's hard work to keep unity. Whether you're talking about in your personal life, in your own family, when there's tension or problems, you've got to work at being united. Or whether you're talking about God's family, you know, all of us coming out of darkness into the light, and now we've got to learn to work together as siblings in Christ, and it doesn't always go very smoothly, but we have to grow in that direction. And through a daily application, a daily cultivation of Christ's likeness, what happens, we begin bearing the fruit that is of the Spirit, and we stimulate growth in each other. The church is Christ's body, and we are called to preserve it, to faithfully preserve the unity of the bond of peace. It's unique. The Lord's church is different like any other. And so we need to have to work really hard not to add to it or take away from it, but to uphold the beauty of what Jesus built. To uphold the simplicity of what Jesus established. Let us not change it, but let us preserve it. Let us be what we've been called to be. Are you in that relationship? Have you been added by the Lord himself to his family to his body, to his called out ones, his church. If not, you need to be. And you can be. If you will obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, and if you will submit yourself in obedience to that call, repenting of your sins, confessing your faith that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and be baptized into Christ, Not only do you have the promise that your sins are going to be washed away by God's power, but also you have the promise that the Lord himself at that moment will add you to his family and recognize you as his brother. What a blessed relationship that is. If we can help you anyway, spirit of the night, 
to put on Christ or to restore your life to Christ, whatever your spiritual need may be, please come forward. Make your wishes known. Always stand and sing the song that's been selected.